This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. On Money Talks, we're here to answer your personal finance questions. Today, we're also going to talk about how to teach kids about money. We usually start the show with financial news in the news, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but we do have an early caller on the line. So let's say good morning to Mike in Hernando. Thanks for calling, Mike. You're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, question, folks. Um, <clears throat> I have applied for, and it's going to be uh, available to me, my, an equity loan on my home. I asked for 18000 which has been approved. Now, my question is, uh, the majority of the money is paying off credit card debt. And I'm wondering, on average, is the monthly payment to pay back the equity loan, will it be less? over the next 10 years and I have been paying monthly for credit card payments? I'm hoping so because that's primarily the reason why I did it. Well, more importantly, you'll be paying off the loan. So uh, sometimes the credit cards are set up with very uh, minimal payments and the interest Mm -hmm. and a large part of your minimum payment would be interest. And so that is to string you out for a long period of time. So I can't tell you exactly without seeing those numbers on your credit card and on your HELOC. But the advantage of the HELOC should be two things. The first is a lower interest payment than what we're seeing on credit cards right now, which is an average in the mid-20% range. And you'll eventually clear that debt out. And that's the best thing that could happen to you. Yes, it is. In fact, the uh, three credit cards that I'm paying off total uh, $12,000. And so they're going to be paid off. And uh, the monthly payment for each of them, you know, has been acceptable, but it's been uncomfortable. And so I got the equity loan to pay them off. And assuming, hopefully, the paying back the equity loan will be less of a payment each month. Well, just stay disciplined with all of that. Ryder, any thoughts? Yeah, so this is a common thing, kind of using a, a loan to consolidate some higher interest debt. We talk about this a lot, and, and yeah, of course, without I, – I was trying to plug in some of the numbers, but uh, it, uh, we're moving a little too quickly for, for me to actually generate that. But as long as, yes, you're moving to a lower interest rate, and like Nancy said, you're sticking to a payment because credit card payments, the minimum is often something like 1% of your balance plus your whatever uh-huh. your interest that was. So as you can see, that that will naturally stretch that credit card payment out for a very long time, and interest can be a very big part of every single payment, whereas the HELOC, there's a deadline on it and and it's it's you're gonna you're gonna crank that down over time so i I think in general that is a good idea of course i'm not i'm not cranking out all those specific numbers right now yeah i know am i correct that paying back an equity loan is usually a span of time of approximately 10 years 
you uh you can pay it back on any timeline you want uh the home equity line depending on how it is set up from the bank sometimes they'll say okay great you just have to pay us back in a however you want at the end of 10 years uh sometimes you can set it up so that you are you've calculated okay what is the payment that is going to get me a, a monthly payment that gets me down from the eighteen thousand down to zero in ten years. Uh, it just depends on how how it is set up and what they're asking for. So it's just a matter of me working with the bank. Well, I, I think isn't. I've got one. I've never had to use it. And said, I'm curious as how the pay pay repayment works. Is it? Go ahead, Nancy. It's very well, flexible. Um, yeah. A, a line of credit is going to be simply here's an amount that you can go all the way up to. And um, you can work your way down and they will just let you let that ride for a period of time. But a definite home equity loan has a certain amount that they give to you up front. And then there's a definite payment or a maturity on that loan. Okay. Right. Okay. And so just as an example, using the 18,000 you said, I I don't know your interest rate at a 6% interest rate. If you paid $400 a month on that, you would have the whole thing paid off in just over four years with a total interest cost of only about $2,400. So that's just kind of an example. Of course, if you were trying to pay it off in only 10 years or so or whatever, uh, that would be – you could have a much lower payment if you were stretching that out over a longer time. Of course, you would end up with more interest over the time. Is that something I need to negotiate with the bank, how I pay it back and at what amounts? It's not clear. Like Nancy said, if it's a line of credit, then they may have a due date, a maturity date for when they want all of the money back. But they don't have a day where they say, "Okay, well, you need to have two hundred dollars on the third of every month to us, et cetera. Um, That may be something now that may be something if you are looking to to make a specific payment, you're saying, "Okay, well, I want this whole thing paid off in five years. I want this whole thing paid off in three years or or what have you. You may get them to Uh calculate for you. Okay, what is that month? payment that I need to maintain in order to hit that goal. They can they can calculate that for you because they have all the relevant information. Oh, good. Okay. Well, thanks. I, uh, that'll help me when I talk to them. Mm-hmm. Well, right. I appreciate you guys. I needed that information because the loan is going to be available to me come next Monday. All right. Uh, they're going to give me the money. Well, good. So maybe Tuesday we'll hear that you're making great <laughs> progress on it. Oh, I'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Mike, thanks for your phone call. That's interesting because I, I didn't recognize the difference, and there is one, between a home equity line of credit and a home equity loan. So there are some there's similar vehicles, but some differences that you would need to pay attention to depending on what your situation is and what, I, mean, I guess, maybe fits your situation the best. So uh, financial news in the news. Ryder, let's, uh, let's, let's let you have first crack. Okay, so whenever there's a Fed meeting, we like to mention that the the Federal Reserve is currently meeting and they're discussing, amongst other things, should they raise the uh, very short term interest rates or not. Uh, The market believes they are not going to raise the interest rate. I was just looking. The market does kind of make predictions about these things um, through 
some uh, futures instruments, and they say there's a 95% chance that the current rates of between 5 and 5.25%, uh, they keep those current rates. There's only about a, a little less than a 5% chance that they actually raise rates. Uh, people are talking about kind of a pause here, and uh, if you were listening just before the show, there was some talk about inflation. Uh, in, inflation number did come in. And it indicates, again, continued kind of moderate inflation. I was just looking. We're kind of on track for about a 3 to 4% inflation rate over the past 10 months. In two more months, over the one-year comparison, we're going to wipe out our two last uh, very high inflation months, which were last May and last June, uh, which were about 1%, kind of average at 1% apiece. So uh, we'll go back to kind of normal-ish maybe a little high rates. So it is cooling. All right. Nancy, what do you have? Well, a couple of stories that are connected to the inflation rate. Um, so the last couple of years, we've been talking about how everybody is just spending like there's no tomorrow. We came out of the pandemic. We're like, by golly, we're going on those trips, doing all of this. Well, uh, leave it to economists to coin a term for that. It's <laughs> called revenge spending. Um, so we're just getting back at the pandemic. And uh, what we're noting is that revenge spending is slowing down. And that's why our inflation numbers are slowing down. So we're, we're kind of going back to a normal summertime. Uh, airlines are noting this. A hospitality industry is noting this. So that's a positive there, and that's what lead, is leading us to some good inflation numbers. The other article I noticed this last week, and I'm starting to feel this, and maybe our listeners are as well, with inflation and rising prices, and, and of course during the pandemic, we wanted to reward our service folks, but now when you go anywhere, there's this expectation of some pretty high tipping rates. And so, um, you know, you, you feel under pressure about tipping maybe even at a higher rate than you normally did before the pandemic. And so people are starting to scale back a bit on their tipping because those service people are getting higher wages. Um, and we're starting to feel the pinch from higher prices elsewhere. So that's an interesting thing to see. The revenge spending, uh, that is an interesting name for it, but that kind of ties into how we were talking about how spending has gone over the past few years. Normally we think about, oh, in a month we might spend X dollars on gas, X dollars on our house, X dollars on food. But with the pandemic, it kind of stretched things out because there were months and months and months and years when we couldn't spend our travel budget. But we pulled forward so much of our housing budget. In the first year of the pandemic, we spent more on our houses and our interiors than we normally do. But then that tailed off a little bit and the travel spending picked up. So it's not so much that we're actually spending like crazy. It's just that we've we've rearranged the timeline and we've expanded that timeline because now we're looking at it over the past three years instead of just over the past couple of weeks or couple of months of spending. You're listening to Money Talks. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app and listen on your iPhone or Android phone to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on demand. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotcher-Janderson, President of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Nancy and Ryder are here to answer personal finance questions. This morning, we're also talking about ways to teach children about money and money management. 
If you have a question for us, email the show money at mpbonline.org. We might not be able to get to it on air, but Nancy or Ryder or maybe both will send you a personal response when you send in an email. So as we talk about uh, teaching kids about money, Nancy, let me put it to you this way. What are what would be some negative repercussions or some things if we didn't teach kids about money? Well, you have spoiled adults who think they get everything they want, whatever they want it, and end up with a lot of credit card debt and uh, no ability to manage their own finances. That, that's pretty grim, but I think you're pr- pretty it spot on grim. there. Yes, yes. And, and just remember, when that happens, they're going to eventually end up back on their parents' payroll, those adult children. And I've seen it many times. People in their 50s still dependent on their parents. Hmm. Uh, fortunately, I'm not in that group. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Ryder, what about how early do you think it, we can begin to teach kids about money concepts? Oh, day one. You, you know, I'm a fan of starting any of these things uh, as early as possible. Uh, day one, it, it just give them a, probably just give them a credit card, under, help them understand a credit limit. You know, uh, I think uh, Mike and Hernando can probably help them understand their, uh, some some spending and some uh, borrowing issues there. No, I, I do think starting early, of course, it's important to be age appropriate. And uh, I know the resource we're going to be looking at today is from the Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau. It's called the Money As You Grow. It's a great resource. We recommend it to folks when they ask about how can I help my children learn about finance. And they have broken out by age groups. They have on their website uh, some reading recommendations, even down to kind of uh, children's books, which might be appropriate. Uh, They even have some kind of cartoons for young children, some worksheets. So uh, absolutely start start them early, teaching them. I think sharing is one of the first things you can learn about money. We're looking for your personal finance questions, but also uh, if you are a parent and you had a method that you thought was especially effective for teaching your kids about money and money management, please give us a call and share with it. Or if you think that your parents did a good job about teaching you about money, we'd like to hear some success stories this morning on the phone lines. If you have one for us, go ahead and give us a call. So uh, we're going to, as um, Ryder mentioned, the, the resource we did sort of lumped kids into age groups. So we'll start with age three to five. So, uh, Nancy, what are some of the things that you can do that begin to teach kids this at, at this early age about money? Well, you know, economics is all about choices. And so certainly a three to five year old, you're going into the store and um, my granddaughter, her favorite place is Target. You know, we're going to Target to get a toy. And but you teach them that they're, they have to make some choices. And so economics is, again, you have limited resources and unlimited wants. And so watching a child stand in front of a counter and with a limited amount of coins, dollars, whatever they have, or they're told you have to just pick one thing and having to make that choice. And sometimes it can drive parents crazy because they will stand there for a long, long time. Decisions are hard. It is. It's really a hard thing, but that's a very important starting point of knowing you can't have everything. You must choose. I think that's a really good point. Nancy said, even just limiting the number of things you choose, say, okay, you can choose one toy. You you don't have to introduce dollars into the first one, especially if a kid is not old enough to be 
great with adding and subtracting in their head, it doesn't make sense to be like, well, your toy budget is $10. No, just say there is one thing you can get, you know, to make that decision. And she mentioned just scarcity is part of it. You have limited resources. So you are limited in some way. And I'm going to confess here because, you know, last my granddaughter visited and we went to the toy store. You don't limit her, do you? You, She just gets that. She gets that credit card and she goes. Well, you know, (laughs) I I said you can have one toy. And she looked at me and batted her eyes and she said, oh, please, can I have two? And I said, sure, you can have two. I'm going to I'm going to tell your daughter. I know. So, but even something like, you know, having, teaching kids how to recognize this is a nickel, this is a dime, but, you know, counting and sorting money, that might be something appropriate to kind of get them uh, to. Well, a a piggy bank, Mm -hmm. and kids love piggy banks, and they love to play with them and put the coins in, and it's really hard these days for parents, because so many of us don't even operate with cash anymore. I mean, you got to go find some money to do this. Yeah. I mean, we pull a card out for a pack of gum the same as we would for a big screen TV. And so that's really hard for kids to make that leap. But to have coins in their hand, dollars in their hand. Um, I have started again with my granddaughter now when it's birthday or Christmas, just giving her a little bit of cash. So that's empowering her to make her own choices there. A little walking around money. And, and yeah. I think also using coins and dollars at, to, to learn other skills because adding up two nickels, what does that equal? Ten, oh, you know, yeah. to, to learn math. So incorporating them into everyday life, just being familiar, being comfortable with money uh, is, is going to be important because you don't want the first time someone actually encounters money to be – when they're uh, 21 and out of, and they're just like, well, what is this? Um, but another thing for that young age, one very important limit for, for that particular activity is wait until those coins are no longer a choking hazard for them. Uh, so when they know right. not to put them in their mouth, um, uh, we're currently at an age where everything is in the mouth. Um, and then another one is, is sharing because a, a lot of, Economics is about exchanging things for things, uh, exchanging one thing for another. So understanding that you have, again, limited time or limited attention to spend on something and other people also want these things. Can you trade toys for some time? Can you share these things? Uh, That also starts building the foundation of understanding these broader economic and financial concepts. And that takes time. Uh, you know, my mo- uh, daughter talked about at Christmas how they bought toys. Or she let her daughter select some toys that they were going to give away. And how she didn't quite understand, okay, I got this toy for this other little girl, but now I, I need to get the same thing. Um, but just to be patient with them, because that's a lifelong lesson we have to learn, because we are human, and it's only natural for us to be putting our own interests first. And so really starting to build that empathy with them, understanding about sharing and helping other people. If you have some success stories about teaching kids about money, or if you were taught well by your parents, we'd love to hear some of your experiences. Or if you have a personal finance question of any kind, that's why Nancy and Ryder come to us each Tuesday to help you with your personal finance. So give us a call. As I say, the phone lines are open. We'll be able to get you on the air uh, in no time. So um, should you, when when we're picking out the toys, is it 
too early to say, well, this one seems to be a better value because you've got six army men for this, you know, oh, is that a little bit gosh. too much? I've got another story. Again, this was, uh, I'm in the toy store with my granddaughter, and my daughter is hovering, you know. And I'd already told my granddaughter she could choose, but then mom is there, you know, inputting all of her ideas and opinions, and I finally shooed her out and said, this is not your choice. And um, so that's part of being a parent, too, is backing up and letting them make choices. And sometimes they make bad choices and they buy the toy that is broken in an hour. And it's like, well, that's it. You're done. Is that uh, the part of the parents role is to back up and let the grandparents say, is that what is that what I'm is that what I'm hearing here? <laughs> yeah, that's. What uh, <laughs> I think that's a very good, the very good point, because as well as making any decision-making process, they're going to need to learn to spend the time doing that on their own. And, and just think, we could look at a row of toys or a row of whatever things adults buy, tomatoes, and make a choice very quickly. It just takes longer for a child. So just give them the time they need to do that. And well, yes, and, like Nancy and, said, back off a little bit. And Ryder, you talk about this all the time because um, we all value different things, and what what's important for me is what I would spend money on. It's not the same as what Kevin would spend money on. Uh, we know that. <laughs> yeah, we all um, know. <laughs> and and Ryder, you going out to dinner. Um, so we all have different things that are important to us, but that's all part of the process, right? By the way, my obsession has – I was at the outlet mall the other day and did not buy a single pair of shoes. So, But uh, I, have started, I have started building Legos, so my one obsession has moved from shoes to Legos. So if Lego could Uh-oh. build shoes, I would be – be, uh, Again, once it's not a choking hazard, once you understand <laughs> not to swallow the pieces, you're good to go with the Legos. Well, you know, that thing I think when we talk about this idea of your kids getting the – learning how to make a choice, one thing we talk about later in life is – uh, wants versus needs. And so that's sort of the early stepping stones to uh, kids, people eventually learning about, I want this versus I need this, I guess. Yeah, but this is what we talk about in our office a lot, which is um, sometimes what I think of as a want, somebody else thinks of as a need. Mm-hmm. And it is all relative. Uh, but again, you just have to make sure you put that on a hierarchy and, and use your funds for the things that are important to you. Money Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lottridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. As I said, Nancy and Ryder ready to answer your personal finance questions, but while we wait for those, we have uh, been talking about teaching kids about how to manage money. And I think we've got a caller on that subject, so let's say good morning to Martha, who's called in from Memphis. Martha, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to ask a question about, uh, say you have a teenager, they're smart about buddy, and they get to the age where they... Uh, get a job and uh, get a W-2 form and all. Uh, If they are encouraged by adults around them, they open an IRA account and um, will that uh, be held against them if they later on they need uh, money, they need loans and uh, 
grants for college were the fact that they have an IRA with a small amount of money in it uh, have a bad effect about them getting a loan. Oh, that's a very interesting question about that. First, I I was like, teenagers starting an IRA, this is great. I love it. They're getting started early, uh, as early as possible. So that's a great start. Uh, As far as how it impacts your student loan and your uh, kind of uh, financial aid eligibility, that does get reported on the FAFSA, the Federal Application for Free Student Aid. Um, there is a small exception, and, and I will say, uh, income or assets that the child has in their name is is the the thing that counts against them the most, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. They have to recategorize some things to shift it maybe towards the parents, where it's actually kind of counts the least. Uh, there is a small exception. I do not have those numbers in front of me. Uh, what I would recommend doing is studentaid.gov has essentially all the information about the FAFSA, and you can find on there what specific uh, exemptions that the student has. I want to say it's around $4,000. If it's under $4,000, they just don't count it. Uh, and I'm and IRAs are generally excluded as well, so that may be totally excluded for the child yeah. if it's in an IRA. I will say IRAs offer a lot of protections uh, in forms of you know keeping it away from creditors, keeping it away from, obviously, taxes, keeping it away from uh, student aid considerations. So it is... It is off the top of my head, I'm going to say it is probably going to count less than uh, just uh, say they have a, a large say they have a thousand dollars in a bank account is going to count against them worse than a thousand dollars in an IRA. I'll 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 say that. Well, very also, good. That that's logical that it, they would uh, uh, make that exception. And being very young. They probably would have under four thousand dollars yeah. in it, uh, unless it was an unusual uh, a job for a big salary. I'm really thinking about it smaller about uh, the reason I encourage uh, parents and grandparents to start uh, that uh, start it actually giving the money to the child to start an IRA like. Now, with Charles Schwab, mm-hmm. you need $1,000 to open the IRA mm-hmm. so that someone, uh, some adult around them uh, help them with that uh, initial fee and, uh, and then maybe help them get started a little bit of saving. And that, well, that's what I did, to tell you the truth. Yes. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's a good idea anyway, is a parent helping out, helping match, helping encourage them to, to save more initially. So they get, importantly, they get in the habit of doing that because saving is a habit that you need to be in. Nancy, your thoughts? Um, I would just say a couple of cautions here that to start an IRA for a young person, they need to have earnings. And generally, that's going to show up on a W-2. Martha mentioned this W-2 that her teenager received. And so you can contribute up to the amount on the W-2 or the maximum that's allowable in that year. I think it's around 6500 now. And um, 
with a young person, if you're not 21, that account can't be opened in your name officially. It is an oh. IRA for your benefit, but you're going to have to have an adult's name on the account. Oh, now that is new to me. Um, but uh, actually, now this was uh, uh, one thing I'm uh, asking the question is, I do encourage, because I am an older person, to uh, uh, help their children and grandchildren get into one, but I didn't think of the fact it could not be in their name until they were 21. Well, even you know, most 21-year-olds don't start them by themselves. So You're right. It, to incur even that age. Well, actually, when my, I did this for I did this for my son, and but he was older than twenty one. He was in his early twenties. So we'll say we'll get him past a teenager and not even open it. Uh, no, as a teenager. I, I would say go ahead and open it as a teenager. Yes, you still have an IRA. You just have to have an adult's name on it until oh, you turn well, twenty one. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, that shouldn't be a problem. Um, but those early dollars in those accounts at, say, 20, 30 years, uh, they multiply so much. It's a wonderful investment. Those first dollars are going to be the biggest dollars when they need it. Absolutely. And uh, uh, they just don't uh, realize the importance of uh, starting early like that. Well, thank you so much. That does answer several questions questions uh, mm-hmm. for me, and uh, I'll pass along the information. Yes, and just to confirm a couple things, I, I do have the FAFSA form pulled up, and I have not double-checked every line here, but they do uh-huh. say do not include um, IRAs in your investment lines. Um, also, custodial accounts for children do count as an asset of the child. So if you're, if you're just thinking, oh, well, it's still the parent's money, uh, it, it, it belongs to the child with the parent as custodian. So that type of account doesn't really offer any protection uh, to them. Oh. But an IRA will have a custodian, like Nancy said, until they're, they're old enough. But it will count as their IRA. But it doesn't count against their FAFSA. It does not appear from this brief reading I just did. Very good. It makes sense that it wouldn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. Things things aren't always logical. (laughs) (laughs) You're right about that. Absolutely, Martha. So the next group of kids, we're going to look at about teaching kids about money. Let's go age 6 to 12. So what's the preteens, I guess? Uh, Nancy, I'll start with you. What about allowance? What are your thoughts on allowance for kids of this age? I I am big on allowance. And, of course, the, the argument back and forth is, should you just give them an allowance regardless of what kind of chores they've done or should you connect it to work? I'm of the camp that you should connect it to work because money is about earning, turning your skills and your abilities and your work into something that you can then use to buy things with. And um, so I think it is important and also it encourages those children to participate in the work of the home, what needs to be done, and so small things that they can do. And, you know, I even think before age six, just having them pick up their own toys, uh, starting to make their beds, um, helping around the house, setting the table, those kinds of things, and however you want to approach it, whether it's with a chart listing chores or you have a certain amount of chores that you're, they're expected to do every week and there's a weekly allowance, 
Um, but then that also teaches them about here's a certain amount of money and I've earned this and maybe there's something that I want that's going to take three weeks worth of allowance in order for me to get. So that's learning about delaying that gratification. Um, so, uh, we can, this, this show can feel free to check back in with me in, uh, let's see if this is age six to 10 in five to 11 years, feel free to check back in with me on this one, but I'm, I'm going to go the opposite. So I'm, I am, I am likewise a big fan of allowance. I think it allows kids to kind of explore the economic world on their own terms. If they have their own money and they don't have to ask a parent like what their limits are, what their choices are, they get to explore on their own terms. I think that's great. I am not my, again, my current thinking, tying it to chores totally uh, or having all of your chores tied to uh, allowance, it kind of may erase the expectation that you have some obligations of contributing to the family unit. Right. So, oh, I'm not going to make my bed unless I get paid or I'm going to accept the fact that I didn't get paid because I don't want to make my bed. Um, And of course, that's I'm kind of pushing an extreme example. But I think that the working in order to earn more is definitely a, a great thing for children to explore. But uh, perhaps when they're maybe a little bit older than just six or years old uh that of course that may be even i don't know when an appropriate allowance time would be either um but having specific things that are above and beyond just your regular contributions to the household uh having those above and beyond things like raking the yard or washing the car uh those may be attached to specific dollar amounts whereas the the general allowance is this is for you to explore the world and be an independent child uh, and then additional things for other chores. Let me share a quick uh, allowance story from my youth <clears throat> and uh, maybe food for thought here. Uh, but one summer I was knowing a... how Kevin turned out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the chore was to mow the lawn. And my dad said, I'm going to pay you whatever it was. Every time you mow the lawn, there are no requirements. You don't have to do it any time you want. You can do it as frequently as you want. But you get paid every time you do it. Well, lazy me, I kind of didn't do it for a couple of weeks. Well, by the end of the summer, it had reverted back to you're mowing the lawn and you're not getting anything for it. <laughs> See? So, yeah, you don't want the situation where you are encouraging a child to just say, you know what? I'm going to forgo that that dollar. Yeah. Right. You know, I didn't use my dollar last week, so I, it's it's no big deal. Or or maybe they've built up enough money and they're kind of sitting like, uh, <laughs> uh, what is it, Donald Duck sitting on top of a pile of coins. And they're just like, no, I'm good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay my siblings to do this for me. Maybe you do want to encourage, I don't know, entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, Dad, I've got enough money. You go ahead and mow the lawn this week. <laughs> Knock yourself out, Pops. All right. Uh, and Kevin, what, what Ryder doesn't know yet is that he has a girl and girls are very expensive. <laughs> Right. Let's, yeah, uh, that yard is going to be well mowed. <laughs> we had a question that uh, talked about IRAs, and we had a listener who couldn't stay on the line but asked for the uh, explanation of the different types of IRAs, which we've talked about, but it's always good to remind folks. Uh, who wants to take that one? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll kick that off. So they're asking about the difference between the uh, traditional deferred IRA and the Roth IRA. So 
these are just two different tax treatments. Any IRA offers tax benefits. There are also restrictions set out by the IRS. So uh, the traditional deferred IRA, when you put money in, it's like a 401k. It's like, it's like many def- other deferred accounts. That's the important thing about it is you're deferring those taxes. When you put money in, it reduces your income for tax purposes. So you save money on your taxes at your top bracket. You put money in, it reduces your income for taxes. It grows. As long as it stays in that bucket, it is tax-free. Now, of course, you have to do some investing in there. You have to put it into some sort of investment. You can't just leave it in cash or it's just not going to do anything for you. You can leave it in cash, but it's not going to do much for you over time. Uh, and then when you withdraw it, it counts as income. You got a tax benefit on the way in, and then you withdraw it and you pay income tax on it. So if you're in a high income tax bracket now, it makes sense to defer some taxes and then withdraw it maybe when you're at a lower tax bracket in the future. A Roth IRA is the opposite. Uh, you, there is no tax benefit for putting money in, but it does grow tax-free and it is withdrawn tax-free. We sometimes call these tax-free accounts, so I always want to be careful with that. Uh, there are still a lot of rules around putting money in and withdrawing money out. Uh, both of these have 10% uh, penalty tax if you withdraw before the age of 59 and a half. For instance, uh, both of them do have limits as to how much money you put in uh, in any given year. And it may be based on your income. It may be uh, it's based on income plus some hard dollar limits. But that Roth IRA, if you think about that, you, there's no tax benefit for putting money in. So if you're in a low tax bracket now, it may make sense to do that, uh, especially if, again, you expect to be in a higher tax bracket in the future. So because that's going to be withdrawn tax-free, you're never paying tax on that again as long as you uh, follow those set rules. And one advantage for younger people putting money into an IRA, a writer mentioned the penalty if you take it out before 59 and a half. There are some exceptions, and one exception I can usually grab somebody with is you can take money out for first-time purchase of a house mm-hmm. up to $10,000. So it's a great way to start saving for a down payment on a house. This is Money Talks. We're wrapping up our show today. And, uh, you know, at the early stage, we let the kids pick which toy they want to kind of give them the idea of having to make choices and that sort of thing. When the kids get a little bit older, 6 to 12 is the group that we're talking about now. Is this time, Nancy, where you might begin to say, hey, this one over here has six army men and this one only has four, so this is a better bargain? Do they have an idea that they can begin to understand that? Raising a value investor, eh? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you still let them figure that out. And hopefully if you've been doing that all along, by the time you've got a 12-year-old, they've already figured a lot of that out. And uh, certainly my brother figured that out when he would – go to the convenience store and buy uh, candy and packs of gum and take it to school the next day and charge twice. Oh, uh, there <laughs> you go. Yeah. Somebody's got to be the candy man. <laughs> yes. So I would, and, and, and if you've ever listened to the show, you've probably noticed that I like to dig into the details and share all the details and try to solve these problems as quickly as I can for folks. So I feel like my, I would have a hard time not stepping in at some point. Uh, but that's, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say that's oh a big boy. philosophical. Yeah, oh no. Boy. I know. Again, I again, wait. again, tune in in five to 11 years and you'll find out what I'm doing. <laughs> 
One of the other suggestions on this uh, for this age group that I thought was interesting was to take a trip to a bank or credit union or maybe visit an online banking site. Does that help them maybe g- begin to understand the system behind yeah, it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that until you've got a teenager. You know, um, and when you start to get into those teen years, you're ready to talk to them about opening a bank account. Maybe uh, they get a debit card at that point. I would say checks, but we don't even do checks anymore. Um, And then when they get closer to college age, that's when you start introducing an actual credit card because they're probably going to need that if they go away to school Mm -hmm. and uh, really practice how that works. And um, we've we've had some interesting stories at my house when when my team came through. So they used to give, I don't know if they still do because I haven't visited a physical bank in a very long time, but they used to give lollipops in the drive-thru. So maybe you do want to visit the (laughs) bank with your younger children. (laughs) Um, But uh, one of the things Nancy mentioned, uh, preparing for college, they may need a debit or credit card. It's so important to expose them to these things well before they need it, and especially well before they need it, and you are not there. Uh, So don't just say, oh, hey, by the way, we've moved you into your dorm room. Here's a credit card. Don't go crazy, and then walk off. It's going to take a long time of understanding those concepts of of you're taking out a loan, you're borrowing more money, but you have to pay it back, or or spending within a very fixed budget. And of course, if you are going to give a credit or debit card to uh, a student, uh, somebody's first credit or debit card, very often... uh, uh, credit card companies will uh, let you f- do some fixed uh, spending limit, maybe a, a fixed dollar limit on any transaction. So they do have tools that will help you monitor and uh, coach your child as they, as, they, as they grow financially. All right. So we've got a little more than a minute left in the show, and I'm going to put you both on the spot here to end the show. And that is by asking maybe one Tip, one thing that parents can think about when it comes to money management in kids, and Nancy, we'll let you go first. I've said it on here before, and uh, some people will say, no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, But it worked in my case, which is don't put overdraft protection on that teenager's bank account. Let them learn the hard way when you overspend, it's going to cost you even more. Let them burn. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Mine, I'm a really big fan of this concept of the spend, save, give. So when you give your child, and this you can start from the first time you give your child money. When you give your child money, have some set division, be it just a third, a third, a third, of they're putting money in their spend jar, they're putting money in their save jar, and their give jar. And so the spend jar, that is that is theirs. It is unlimited. It's whatever they want to do with it. Uh, some people also include a tax jar. I think that's a little harsh for young children. Um, Not yet. <laughs> the say, but they'll need to know that before they hit their first job or it's going to be a real big shock. Um, The save jar is, okay, these are longer term things. Let's talk about, let's plan for longer term, larger expenses, and then give. That's money you use generously. That's money you spend on other people. Uh, That's just a way of, of, of opening yourself up financially. All right. Good show today. That's going to wrap us up. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio and is funded in part by financial support from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit moneytalks.mpbonline.org or listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks on your preferred podcasting app. 
So for Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson and Ryder Taff, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.